Welcome to Globally Speaking, a production by RWS. Globally Speaking is designed to educate, inform, and challenge everyone who is engaged in global communications. Our experts talk to various industry thought leaders to dig into the most critical issues impacting language and localization today. Learn more by visiting our website at www.globallyspeakingradio.com. Now, here is the host for this episode. Hi, my name is Jim Compton. I am Technology Partner Manager at RWS, and I'm here today with Kirill Soloviev. He's the founder and CEO of Content Quo, and today we're going to be talking about language quality and language quality as an investment. Kirill, thanks for being here today. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about Content Quo and how that got started? Absolutely. Hello, everyone. It's my pleasure to be on the Globally Speaking podcast today. Thanks for having me, Jim. Yeah, Content Quo got started a number of years ago. Before starting the company, I was in the localization business for 13 years at the point. I was actually um, a director of a global localization program at a software company. And um, when I left that position, I started to think, okay, what are the difficult challenges that were really bugging me when I was on the buyer side? So what are the things, uh, what are the problems around localization that are still largely unsolved? And uh, then I met my my co-founder and business partner, Alexander, and together we basically decided on this idea, hey, that, you know, language quality has been largely unchanged and the way that teams manage it has been unchanged from the early 2000s. So uh, people were still throwing Excel spreadsheets and sending them by email in 2015. So we set out to solve that and to make the process easier, less painful more efficient, and also more enjoyable. And here we are in 2021. Our technology is now used by some of the largest and smartest translation organizations, localization teams, and global top 10 LSPs around the world. So that's Content Quo. Cool. So I actually wanted to throw you kind of a challenging question today. And this is based on an experience that I had a few years back when I was at a QBR with this big customer who is spending a lot of money on localization and a lot of money on LQA. And they were pretty frank and they said, we actually don't like spending money on LQA. They described it as a mistrust tax and said, essentially, every dollar that we spend focusing on sort of this mistrust tax is a dollar that we can't use to bring content to our customers. I thought you might have an opinion about that and wanted to see what you think about that. Absolutely. And thanks for sharing this story, Jim. I probably have even more than one opinion, which we can definitely explore. Uh, So first, um, I might live in Estonia, but I'm an ethnical Russian. And in Russia, we have the saying uh, that goes like this, trust, but verify. So uh, this is basically our company's motto. And we feel that it very, very nicely sums up uh, everybody's approach to this kind of question. And I think it rhymes very nicely was this missed trust tax, right? So, or trust, but verify. Um, there is the other angle that I wanted to throw in here is, yeah, you might think about it um, as, uh, as an 
investment you're making into your localization program and you typically have several alternatives where you can invest this money so one of the best um, paradigms that i have found while building content quo and deploying it in in different localization teams all over the world is thinking about quality management as an investment game uh, as a way to uh, put the money in strategic areas to reduce the risk of inadequate quality as much as possible with a fixed budget. So this is very much akin to how, I don't know, venture capitalists would invest their money into technology companies or into startups, right? They're they're looking for a 100x return on their investment. So the quality management science and the quality, quality management art is kind of doing the same. So how do we find that one area of our localization program where we would invest the, the quality dollar to get some amazing returns in terms of reducing the, the, the risk, the potential for quality problems? So this is how we prefer to think about, yeah, on one hand side, this is uh, a bit of a necessity in the modern modern localization world of complex supply chains that span several organizations easily. And yet at the same time, it's also a strategic investment. And actually, actually, one of the main drivers why companies engage with us, why companies engage with content quo, they want to reduce the amount of LQA or of quality assessment or review they're doing. And, and data that we help them derive from this process is actually crucial to drive that reduction so so it's a bit of a uh, a bit of a snake that's eating its own tail in a funny and weird way go figure <laughs> so i want to ask you about that like i like this idea of you need to think about it as an investment how do you approach that like if you were to have a customer come to you and and ask you help me invest my money to maximize my investment and invest in quality in the right way, what does that look like? How would you advise them? Yeah, uh, so to be honest, Jim, uh, and especially lately in the past quarter, uh, our conversations are a little bit less about investment and actually more about fundraising. So we actually help to have our customers raise the internal funding in order to to sponsor any kind of a quality program before they can actually invest, right? So that's been a major, major focus for us lately, is helping people understand the opportunity and build the business case internally to start doing something around quality, start doing something around data that they can use to reduce the risk, right? So this is usually the first investment um, uh, problem or challenge to solve. Once we're through that, once we've actually helped our customers raise this internal quality fund, then we can get into the really fun stuff. Then we can get into how we allocate this investment and so on and so forth across their localization program, different content types, different language pairs, different supply chains, different quality levels they want to hit and so on and so forth. So these are the two stages we could potentially talk about. And when the last stage, of course, is well exiting. So getting some fabulous returns from your quality program, be it in terms of, you know, internal promotions they can get or in terms of reducing the overall budget for their review program or speeding up the time to market for high quality localized content. So this would be the the kind of returns that our customers usually get from a data driven approach to quality. It's interesting to me that 
you have to work with your customers sometimes to raise the funds internally to support quality. Why aren't those funds already available as part of, let's say, the localization program budget for these companies? Great question, Jim. They actually might be available. And I think this is exactly the situation which you've started from our conversation today, right? So uh, the, 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 the company that was saying every dollar spent on quality is actually not spent on something else, on crafting our global content was high impact. I would argue this is the case. Yeah, this is still part of the overall localization budget. But in fact, what we found, especially was, um, let's say, um, lower maturity organizations and mm, sometimes smaller teams is it's incredibly hard for them to justify moving a part of the localization program budget and allocating this to quality. And this is actually very counterintuitive that it has to be this way because let's say if you're a technology company, um, if you're building software, for example, any any person, any executive managing software product development would have a certain portion of their engineering budget set aside for QA, all right? People test software all the time. They, they, they report bugs. They, they fix them. They improve the software quality. The process is very well established. There's usually no problem whatsoever allocating budget for a software QA program. Now, doing the same and exactly same organization, but for the localization program is sometimes incredibly and counterintuitively hard. So in some cases, we even have to pitch together with our customers to their executives to explain how exactly um, localization quality investment is very much like software quality investment or, um, you know, content quality or source content quality investment. People just don't get the analogy. Localization is still a black box and, you know, still the key role for any localization manager is to evangelize and, and explain and make sure that people understand why and how they will be investing that localization program budget. I've heard other localization buyers, when you try to get into a conversation about quality, the sort of data that is returned to them isn't really understandable or relevant in terms of like what the business performance would be of the content globally. What do you think about that? Do you think the data that's traditionally produced today can be correlated back to, to business performance? Great question, Jim. I would say this is the, the holy grail of all quality management programs. And let's try and unpack this maybe for, for a couple of minutes. Um, now, obviously, when we localize, we want to drive some business outcomes for our organization. We want to increase sales, we want to influence marketing KPIs, we want to reduce the support costs, you know, whatever the individual departments or businesses' objectives might be. And, uh, of course, the type of content that you create has an influence uh, um, in terms of how and how much of those business outcomes can be achieved through localization. Now, the, the really big and hairy question is, okay, can we predict what will happen after we publish this content uh, without actually having to wait and see how our customers, our users, our players, our readers will react. So in other words, I think the ultimate allure of, of quality metrics that we can gather in the localization process is that 
They are actually leading metrics. You can have an idea about them before the content is out the door. Whereas any kind of business outcomes that localization is driving, um, they are inevitably lagging indicators. It takes a long time to see the results, right? So ideally, in an ideal world, we would have a straight connection line between those leading indicators like quality and lagging indicators like outcomes. But (laughs) there's a bit of a problem in many organizations we've seen. It's incredibly hard to bridge the the, the silos or the walls between the compartments inside the organization and have this kind of straight line visibility between the two. So sadly, sadly, most organizations we've seen have not yet got into this holy grail they can't predict although they're really trying hard to align the the internal you know localization view of global content quality towards something that might be more relevant towards the business outcomes and i I think one big mistake that many teams make Actually, both on the buyer side and on the LSP side, they're trying to approach quality with a cookie cutter approach. So what worked for organization A surely must work for an organization B because on the surface, their business is very similar. Now, this cannot be further from truth. And I think one of the major ideas that has really shaped our current approach to localization quality in the past decade, I would say, is the idea that quality is dynamic, that there is no one size fits all. And in fact, the best quality programs we've seen are acutely aware of that, and they tailor the very way they define the, the, the right level of quality towards the content type, language pair, and even individual stakeholders they have to work with in order to get this localized content out the door. So yeah, holy grail not achievable, but moving in this direction is really, really desirable. And this dynamic view of quality as a as a set of moving targets is probably one of the, the best ideas we had from the 2010s. That's where we are. Yeah, this is interesting. The even idea of what quality means has has changed. The metrics had to do with language, right? And things that would be linguistic attributes. And do you think we're moving more into a phase where quality is more a description? Could it mean something more like how the the content is received by the, the intended audience, like how they respond to it? Absolutely, absolutely. So this is this is an aspect of what I was talking about before when we talked about this outcome-driven notion of quality, right? So the end users or the reader's perception, the actions they take when they consume your localized content, of course, these are the ultimate quality measure, right? Uh, each piece of content is generally brought into this world for a reason. And if after you localize it, it continues to perform and deliver uh, towards that reason, towards that outcome, then the quality is adequate, right? And and, and then you don't need to care about uh, downstream linguistic uh, aspects. If it does its job, it means it's high quality enough. Now, 
the the big challenge that we've noticed is in many cases it's actually really hard to get to the outcomes driven by content or even to the reaction of the readers and the users to that content. I'll give you an example. Uh, we work a lot with some governmental organizations uh, here in the EU, with the European Parliament, for example. They have an amazing quality program. Now, what kind of content do they produce? They actually localize laws, okay? They localize parliament session transcripts and many other things that don't have any direct way of collecting user satisfaction information. There are no marketing KPIs they're driving. Uh, And it's basically uh, something that has to exist. Maybe there's a a certain type of a compliance component there, but there is no performance measurement attached. Does it mean that they can, cannot run a quality program or should not? Quite the contrary, this is actually the only option they have in order to keep the result in check because they know that for them and for their content, outcome-based metrics are never coming, not in a month, not in a year, not in 10 years. There's simply no way to collect them for this type of content. So yeah, this is basically what's uh, keeping a quality quite alive. In some cases, you just simply cannot get to how the readers will react. There's no channel to collect this information. In other cases, it takes so much time that the the metrics uh, are incredibly lagging. And in yet many other cases, you only get surface level feedback. So uh, that's maybe the biggest problem was this kind of outcome driven notion of quality. It tells you where you are and how people react to your localized content, but you have no clue why this is happening. And this is where the good old linguistic quality approach really shines doing the root cause analysis and trying to understand, okay, but why did they react this way? Can we change something in our copy, in our content, in our localized software to have them react differently? And it turns out that for that matter, a formal linguistic quality program is incredibly useful. It gets you from the what from the outcome, high-level results from marketing KPIs to ideas about why, and then you can act on those ideas. So this translation of law, I think, is a really interesting example through the investment model, right? In that sense, it's almost a form of insurance, right? You're protecting against the possible disastrous situation that your law, through the process of translation, just made something go from illegal to being, you know, mandatory or something like that. So when you are working with localization teams, let's say, and they understand the importance of having this quality program built into that localization program, and they need to, let's say, convince stakeholders internally to raise funds, how do you coach them to make that argument inside their companies? Yeah, it depends a little bit on what types of content they need to localize. Uh, Let's take an example of marketing or digital marketing, because usually that has a very direct path to, you know, metrics important for the business. So I really like that. Um, 
Usually, when it comes to global marketing content, most localization teams at, at one point or another would institute some kind of an in-country review process. They have local marketers who would use the, the, the centrally localized content as part of their campaigns, on their websites, in their emails, and so on and so forth. And uh, this process is usually set up before any kind of notion of quality management comes into play. And and usually what we find when we engage with such teams is that their in-country review process has gotten really out of hand. The in-country teams hate localization team because localization doesn't deliver what they feel is right or good quality. They, they, they are really pissed about having to make corrections to the localized copy over and over. And the localization team and its suppliers seem to ignore uh, their feedback all the time, right? So the, the, they really have nowhere to go. They basically, they have to continue uh, cutting the, the proverbial tree with a very, very blunt X, okay? And they don't have a minute to stop down and sharpen the X. So this is where we come in. We'll give them a way to sharpen the X, cut down the tree once and for all, and stop getting this endless stream of complaints from in-country teams. Uh, also, reducing the time it takes to take the content to market from your source language copy to your localized copy. So this is one very easy way to advocate for a quality program. If you are struggling with in-country review, it's taking you a long time, you're getting lots of pushback, um, internal stakeholders are unhappy or you know external partners start to complain. Put a quality program in place in order to gradually minimize the effort it takes the in-country marketers to improve your content and significantly reduce the time to market for globalized content. When you combine those two, less effort and faster time to market, a quality program is usually an easy sell. So that's one good example. You mentioned your impetus for starting content quote is that you felt that there were these problems unsolved. What were those problems, and do you feel that they're solved now? Huh, great question. I, I wish I could take credit for, for solving them, but this is actually not the case. Uh, I, I want to say not the case yet, um, but it, even that is a, a stretch. You see, um, machine translation has really, really advanced into the industry, and uh, back in 2015 when we started, even Neural was not really a major player. I think just the, the very first releases of Neural Engine uh, technology happened in 2015. Now it's mainstream and it's it's driving a whole new set of quality challenges that we didn't even know will exist back in 2015. So I kind of like to think about it as a never never ending story. You solve one aspect of the quality challenges. Like we like to think we solve the collaboration aspect of a quality program. We solve the, the exchange of feedback between the people who uh, review the translation and the people whose translation is reviewed, right? So our technology is great 
great at solving that. But now, how do you do the same with machine translation engines? They cannot really understand your feedback. You need to do it in an entirely different way, okay? Um, you can do much more translated content with an empty engine, right? Because your, your uh, relative cost is so very low. Now you need completely new methods to keep your empty output quality in check, right? So this is basically the, the, the era of machine translation with its own very, very intricate and special challenges. And so uh, our job is never done. That's kind of how I like to think about it now. I want to ask about that because absolutely we are in the era of machine translation. And I love this idea of when you solve a problem, the, the new one pops up, right? That just is how life <laughs> works, right? There's a, right. thank goodness for that, right? There's an infinite amount of problems to solve. What do you think for the next six years is going to be the focus of quality assessment, quality management? Yeah, surprisingly, uh, what, what we see, and, and we have been helping um, some of the more advanced machine translation teams run their own quality programs for MT, right? So I'm, I'm speaking from experience. What we see uh, is this trend of converging disciplines. Um, as the amount and the, the diversity of machine translation offerings increases in growth, we see this huge, huge trend of uh, machine translation management becoming similar to vendor management in localization. Uh, let's just think about it for, for a split second. Uh, when you start to have lots of empty engines and empty engine providers, uh, you can almost see them as your linguists or as your uh, suppliers or as your LSPs. You give them content to translate in one or two source languages. They give it back to you in a certain time frame for a certain cost and with a certain quality level. And uh, with this plethora of new empty players on the market, with the much much simplified process of training custom engines for different types of content and, you know, tone of voice and language variants. There's basically an, an infinite amount of empty engines coming up and they can be managed using the same good old methods that vendor management teams and localization have been practicing for the past two decades. So this is maybe one area that always keeps striking me as unusual. Yeah, they are machines, but we kind of need to, 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 herd them right almost in the same way that we have sometimes to herd our human suppliers we need to help them do a better job we need to monitor how they perform we need to give them feedback we need to select the good ones and give them more work and we need to stop using the bad ones right and this process never ends and i think it will get bigger and bigger and bigger over the years that is that's really interesting analogy i envision like a hr department that's on a bunch of conference calls with with actual robots, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that brings, brings absolutely. Up. Um, I honestly wish I I never lived to see the day, Jim, when a, a machine translation engine can actually respond to the feedback you're 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 providing its way. So I honestly hope we'll not be there when that happens. So for now, uh, one major distinction between machine translation suppliers and human suppliers is that machines don't talk, uh, at least not yet, or at least not in the same sense as human suppliers sometimes might when you give them feedback on the quality. Of their translations. That's interesting. The idea of an actual argument 
or not an argument, but a, like a healthy debate about like the output with a machine translator. Yeah, will be interesting to see how how this evolves. Is there anything in terms of like interesting new technology in the quality management space that we should know about? Hmm. Yeah, maybe there are a couple of different levels that uh, I think people should be should be aware of. Um, one is again for machine translation. Uh, there's been some nice developments in the area of what they call quality estimation, which is basically building a machine learning engine that can uh, assess the quality of other machine learning engines, right? So MT can be evaluated by something that's not MT itself, but can get us some insights on how good or bad the output is. And uh, I feel that when that becomes widespread, and it's probably still several years away, this will have a major impact on how we procure and deploy and publish MT. And right now, uh, I think this is really, really advanced, cutting-edge frontier that only the best and the smartest teams can afford to experiment with and uh, trying to find their way around this new technology that's still nascent, that's still emerging, and trying to figure out how to how to best use it. But this will surely be interesting, and I think it will even increase the need for human involvement because there's been so much expertise in the in the traditional quality management community inside localization that can be applied to MT and to training better algorithms that I personally believe quality experts will never be out of a job, okay? So that's one. Uh, And number two, um, I I think this is going back to the same idea that we've mentioned in the the beginning, right? So treating quality management and localization as an investment game. Um, So we have been quietly working on some advanced solutions to actually build out something like that in a product, a a tool or an app or a feature, whatever you call it, that will help you become this kind of investor uh, for your quality program and uh, manage your portfolio risk in a smart way and, and run it on autopilot without having to deal with the daily uh, chores that usually are part of any quality management uh, person's or expert's job, right? So that might be on a smaller tactical scale, just making this the life of those quality investors a little bit easier, less routine, and more focused on analysis and decision making than you know pushing the buttons uh, or responding to comments. So this is probably a, a shorter term perspective that can also make certain things easier on a tactical level for quite many teams. That, that sounds awesome. Kirill, was there any topic that you would have wanted to discuss that we didn't bring up or any question you wish I would have asked? Maybe there's one, actually. Um, uh, Over the years, I was always surprised by how many quality experts uh, actually don't know much about the previous work that has been done in the industry to make their lives a little bit easier. I'm talking about standards here, Jim, and I know that you also personally are involved into quite a few of those. So we also have our own standards development in the quality community. And there's one exciting uh, thing that's probably going out this year. Um, There used to be um, a really nice effort called MQM, Multidimensional Quality Metrics. 
Metrics, uh, spearheaded a number of years ago and finally published in 2015. Now, over the past years, there has been a very nice committee. Some of the best quality managers I know quietly working on the next version of that, basically trying to collect the best um, the best of the best experiences from around the industry on how uh, language quality programs are set up, uh, designed, managed, and, and run. And I know that um, there's some amazing people from RWS, actually part of that effort too. So uh, this new... Uh, effort should culminate this year when the standard will be hopefully approved and published under ASTM. So I invite everyone to watch that space. And once it's out, really check what it has to offer. It's an incredible, incredible amount of work and thinking and knowledge exchange that went to, on to preparing the standard. And I really feel this represents the, the best uh, easily available body of knowledge that anybody s- thinking to start their own quality program or improve their own quality program, whatever they might be doing um, in the industry, I invite everyone to take a look at that and try to figure out, okay, what can I borrow? What are the elements that I can reuse in order to avoid reinventing the proverbial wheel and try to actually get more alignment in how the industry treats quality uh, I do foresee long-reaching consequences for the relationship between buyers of localization services and vendors that can potentially come out of the standard being adopted. So fingers crossed, uh, when people listen to that, they might already see that available. Kirill, thank you so much. I think this was a great conversation. It's super interesting to think about how quality has been evolving and where it's going. Thank you for asking smart questions, Jim. And I do really hope that was interesting and hopefully eye-opening for all the people listening to Globally Speaking Podcast. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Globally Speaking, an RWS production. You can subscribe to Globally Speaking on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or Podbean. Check out other episodes on globallyspeakingradio.com where you can also find transcripts from every show. We'd like to hear your comments, suggestions, and feedback. So don't hesitate to reach out to us by contacting us at info at globallyspeakingradio.com.